I have a brother. I have a father. I have a little brother. I have cousins. You know, I have a body. I have family. I have friends who are all still in America, fighting this virus and fighting the virus of white supremacy. But just to see like this, like global reaction kind of for me like cemented how little the world really cares about black people or how much they're like how big of a thing it is that like everyone knows that it's a problem or most people know that that's a problem they also hold this problem it was just like very shocking and I felt like when I was dealing with people I was always kind of being seen through this lens of like the movement and like are you like my, my white friends like messaging me and all these things it was just very like overwhelming and like confusing in some ways but I did feel like a a shift but the shift is not great enough and it's not big enough I still think that we need to like continue it needs to like go and go and go welcome to decolonization in action a podcast that considers how knowledge medicine science and the arts are being colonized today my name is Edna Bonham and I'm broadcasting from Berlin Germany If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes. This is Season 3, Episode 10. During this episode, I was in conversation with Murilola Olayemi Elupeju, who is a transdisciplinary Nigerian-American artist and writer living in Berlin. Primarily working with painting, performance, video installation, and writing, her studio practice acts as a metaphysical space where she can produce evidence and embark on earnest freedom pursuits. Is a way of coping, questioning, and occasionally proposing something new. Recurring points of interest in her work include perversion and intuition, evolving sexuality in relation to intimacy, trauma, and body image. She also touches upon queer and anti-colonial methodologies, religion and spirituality, improvisation, and the recovery of selves. First of all, welcome and thank you so much for participating in the Decolonization in Action podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I have listened to the podcast in the past and I'm very happy to have been invited. So there are so many wonderful things that you've been doing here in Berlin. You're a curator, artist. We've been on a panel together and you're doing a lot of creative work that tries to look at the intersections of race, technology, and beyond. What has been your artistic journey over the past several years, and why did you decide to come to Berlin? So I guess I will start in Miami, where we are both from. I mean, you're like, you're a true Miamian, but I went to high school there. I went to Academy of the Arts and Minds, which is now uh, no longer standing anymore. It's like an abandoned school now. But it was an art school, and I moved to Miami. Um, very surprisingly, my mother wanted a new fresh start, and I was coming from Maryland, and I didn't want to move, and I was just very distraught about it. But I knew that if I was going to have to move, I wanted to study art. And art before, like age 14, 15, wasn't something that I took very seriously. Um, but yeah, I just like felt this like calling. And so I applied to different art schools in Miami and got into this one. And when I got to that art school, I had a Cuban uh, art teacher named Mrs. Abreu, who is very, uh, very conservative Cuban 
woman, uh, just beyond the politics. Like she was a very strict teacher, and basically, basically, the criteria that I learned art through was like in comparison to like traditional European painting, and for her, like realistic European oil painting was the creme de la creme of art. And so that was kind of how I had my entry point into art, right? Uh, I do appreciate kind of the, the technical skills that I learned during that period of time. Um, I feel like I did have some aptitude when it came to realistic painting, but it was really like in this kind of space of like never feeling good enough, to be honest, that I like really pushed myself. I did notice that I was mostly painting racially ambiguous or white people though. Um, I mean, which in the past I've beat myself up over it, but now looking back, I understand like it was, an, it's a naive space to be in and it's not my fault basically, but that has been something that I've been actively um, unpacking and like deconstructing in the past almost what, nine years now that I've been pursuing art seriously. After, high school, I went to New York University, and uh, I actually didn't uh, apply to be an artist, uh, to, to the art major. Like I applied to do psychology, and I just didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I hadn't yet accepted like that I just was an artist and that I was just going to do this, because to be an artist means to constantly be creating your own rules and your own way of living, and it's really like a very scary Sick. It's a very scary um, thing, and so I wasn't ready, but then by my sophomore year, I decided, okay, you're going to study art, and uh, I switched my major, and then my minor was in social and cultural analysis, which is like cultural studies, gender and sexuality studies, political science, philosophy, all kind of smushed into this really incredible school at NYU that I highly recommend. Um, and when I was at NYU, that's when I began to really learn about conceptual art and just this idea that like art didn't have to be um, realistic painting or that I didn't only have the, that set of tools in order to kind of express these very ambiguous or hard to locate feelings and emotions that I'd had. And um, so yeah, I think like I discovered video during this time and my world just kind of like blew open. I was experimenting with found footage a lot and Arthur Jaffa's Love is the Message, the Message is Death at the at, at Gavin Brown. Like that show blew my mind. And yeah, I just I it was it was a great period of of exploration for me. And also a lot of my professors that I had, Eric Rene Crosby, Lana Ashton Harris, like an amazing cohort of like black artists that were teaching at NYU during this period, um, that I still call friends, like really shaped a lot of that experience. And then my junior year of college, I had to st I studied abroad. I was very lucky and privileged and grateful to have had that choice. Also to be clear, I had scholarships to go to NYU. I would not have been able to afford the $70,000 per year price tag otherwise. Um, but, um, and all of the art classes that I could take were in Berlin. And I didn't have any preconceptions about Berlin. I didn't know much about it. I wasn't fantasizing about going to Germany. I didn't care, you know? But all the classes that I could take were here. And so I was just like, why not? All my best friends were studying abroad there. Fall 2016, 
and yeah I went and I really liked it like I it was completely new like to me in a lot of different ways um just I felt like I was kind of just like dropped into this like black hole of the city and um being able to experiment and to just like I don't know just a lot of new ways of like partying and new art and new ways of talking about politics all these things that I um, hadn't been exposed to before and also it's like really cheap in comparison to New York where I'd grown up or where I'd gone to school so yeah after I studied abroad I kind of was like could I live here and then I visited a few times um, after studying abroad and then I decided after graduating that I was going to move here and I, I don't regret the decision but I mean, it's not an easy place to live in some ways, but in other ways, I have gotten a lot from living here. And I'm still learning like what these things mean. So, yeah. So it's, it's quite interesting that you talk about your experience from Miami, a city that I've lived in, that, as you mentioned, where it's over 50% of the population was born outside the United States, mostly in the Caribbean. So it has a Latin American, Caribbean influence. And it also has an art scene, one that's tied to Art Basel, or now what is called Art Miami, um, very high-end uh, art festival. And then New York has a different kind of art scene. You know, we have everything from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so well-established lineages of Western and non-Western art. And then Berlin, which is a place, and as you just kind of ended on, it's livable. It's a place where artists can, of various stripes, produce and still be able to um, pay their bills. And that's a reality that's impacting who can enter art and who can't. How do you compare the diversity of the art communities in New York City where you were engaged, because you mentioned some black artists, versus here in Berlin in terms of the ethnic class or other backgrounds of people who are producing art here in Berlin? I would say that in some ways, like being a a black artist here, especially after, I'm not even after, but in the midst of an immense resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, I do feel like a bit more visibility just in that there are black artists here and I want to see more black artists here, but in comparison to New York, it's like night and day. I mean, I don't know if that's the right pun, but <laughs> it's like night and day. Uh, in New York, yeah, like, there are black artists everywhere. And when I was in New York, I would go to all these galleries, all these openings, all these like Brooklyn, like DIY shows. And uh, it wasn't, it wasn't in some ways, like it wasn't something that was so highlighted on in the same way. Like, I mean, yes, like you have a lot of black artists that are like really kind of taking up a lot of questions around identity and cultural politics, but, it's just like, yeah, like it just wasn't as big of a, it's not as big as a, th of a thing, I guess. Um, but in my case, like regardless of where I've lived, I've always kind of felt, I wouldn't even call it a responsibility, but just I do want to make work that is in some way like a part of this resistance towards these oppressive systems. Um, but yeah, like I think that Berlin is very diverse in terms of there's a lot of different nationalities living here and there is just like an interesting way that art discourse unfolds, but I do think that in, in New York, maybe I was exhausted at times by like how uh, much race always was talked about. But then I've come here and maybe it's like not so different actually. Maybe like race is still talked about so much, 
but people are either relating to it in a different way or they're just quote unquote behind like the American consciousness or something like that. But I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like I'm kind of like still in the middle. But for myself, like one of the main reasons why I moved, and I didn't know if I was going to stay here for a year, two years, whatever. But I, I just kind of wanted to like understand like my position as um, an artist, as a black queer artist, like without the, I, I'm not going to say the noise, but just without the constant referring to like my cultural upbringing and like. Cause like when you're in a space where like everyone knows you and like everyone knows like where you're from and your background, like you kind of feel like you have to like sometimes um, uphold certain traditions or certain ways of relating to something. And so, yeah, I would say that in Berlin, like I still sometimes feel a bit cornered, um, but I, I, I don't know. I'm still kind of working through like how to, to work, how to talk about these things and how to, how to like deal with these topics in my own work. Does your work in any capacity deal with decoloniality and decolonization insofar that uh, are you looking at how either Germany or other European countries have had an impact on art within the African diaspora? Yeah, I, I would, I, I do definitely want to talk about Wayward Dust, my performance where I quite literally deconstructed a super racist um, installation that was depicting sorry, trying to depict the inside of a slave ship. Um, but before that, I would say that like, I'm not, I don't see myself as like a historian um, in the sense that I'm not, like in this particular project, there was like a very specific like historical context that I was researching and like trying to understand that the project itself like made space for. Um, but I think back to like when I first started getting more into art and more into conceptual art, and this idea of like what it means to like create new spaces or to create your own rules. And part of that for me, the reason why it was especially liberating for me was because, you know, for so long, like when you're growing up, like you're not asked to be born. You're not like you had no say in being here. You didn't get to choose the body that you entered into this life in. And you can internalize a lot of um, a lot of opinions and a lot of um, abuse from the system without actually understanding like how those abuses um, are created and uh, enacted, right? And for me, as I kind of got more and more into art, I began to see that there are all of these like constructed value systems and, and, and realities all around us all the time that are saying who is not supposed to be here, who is supposed to be here, whose voice is louder, whose voice is smaller, who even has a voice, all these like stupid like uh, ideas about the voice, like, you know, but there's a measure that's been created. And for me, like the most, like, I think compelling thing about that idea is that it was created. So at one point it, what, it was like in a, in, a, in a thought or an idea, and then it somehow was pushed out into um, the world through technology, through the media, through, um, uh, through capital, through labor in different ways. And as an artist, for me, like what's most exciting and what I hope to have as like the forefront of my work is to constantly be like pushing the limits of my own ability to create, you know, and to also instill that power in other people that you actually can create things that are like away from all of this or that are responding or that is like attack. Like, I don't know, there are so many different ways to kind of relate to um, 
what it means to have a body or a black body or a gendered body. So what you're describing in some ways is, uh, like you said, deconstruction, but it's also maybe reimagining and perhaps uh, reshaping the narratives that we've been told or maybe sometimes the lies that we're told by society or others. Uh, and you briefly mentioned Wayward Dust. This is an exhibition slash performance art piece that you have here in Berlin at the German Technical Museum. And the residue of this performance is now around us and outside, whatever. Um, but I mean, I think like a very clear example of how these um, narratives of history are constructed and then used against vulnerable societies was this installation, like exactly. This was an installation that was built in the context of the shipping and navigation department of the museum. And the point of, the, of this installation was to contextualize navigation and shipping through the lens of colonialism which I think is important because oftentimes you have these like technical museums that are very like dude heavy and like for kids and like, you know, educational. And you have like these big engines and like these like trains and these trucks and these airplanes. But then you're actually asking yourself, why were these things built? Who built them? Like, how are these things like traded in, in this part of the world? So I do think that it was good that in the 90s, the museum felt the need to like, or they recognize the responsibility of like mentioning this part of history. But there was this German sculptor, this white German sculptor named Hans. I'm like, I love that I can't even remember his name. Hans something Jurgen. It's like, it's in the um, description. And he basically built this installation where there were 82 figurines that were trying to depict African people, enslaved people inside of a cargo container just in the middle of this museum behind a cage. You press a button, the lights, sh the lights shine on their faces. And of course this uh, installation terrified um, so many of the people that, you know, especially the black people that came into this space. I've heard stories of black children being made fun of by their classmates after seeing this installation, et cetera, et cetera. And I think for me, the most violent thing about this um, installation is that if you look, you can't actually go inside, but for my performance, I went inside and I, I collected all of the dust that was in this space. And when you go inside, like they're just hanging out, they're smiling, they're chilling, there's a lot of space between them. And obviously like the inside of a slave ship did not look like that. Like you're forgetting about the dead bodies and the feces and the, and like this, there was like suffering. There wasn't just like, people hanging out and to me it's just so dangerous that for over 17 years like this existed in an educational context in one of the most famous technical museums in Germany for that long and only the it was still up the day that I came to see it for the first time a year ago I was like why is this still up the curtains that you see around us these were finally put up after the day that I came I was like this needs to be I don't care if I'm having this in a year or in three years, this, cannot, this can no longer be in the space. Um, but anyway, I did the performance and to be honest, I wasn't like, I had received very sad news a few days before and I wasn't even nervous to do the performance because I was just like kind of in a different space. And in some ways I'd become so desensitized to seeing the figurines in one weird way that I was just kind of like, I, need to, I just need to go in and, and do what I have to do. And it wasn't a very dramatic performance in the sense that I didn't really like talk or I wasn't 
it was live streamed, so I wasn't having this like relationship that I usually have with my audience, like when I perform. But I just did what I was supposed to do, and I'm still thinking about the the performance in itself, and I'm still processing what it means now that I see this huge ball of dust that is still sitting there and not really knowing like what to do with it or how I feel about it. But I think this idea of like unproductive labor and reproductive labor keeps on coming back, and this idea of kind of you're creating a space, you're, you're, you're cleaning a space that's going to be destroyed so that something else can take its place. And that to me is like exciting to be able to be a part of like that process, like in a very direct way. At the same time, what you're describing to a very, what for me would also be a horrific visual display of black enslaved suffering put into a museum without much context, <laughs> I take it, because at the time it, it seems as if people were visually uh, seeing how slave ships were organized, but not necessarily getting the full depth of how tragic people were forced to migrate. And it, it, it lends the question, it begs the question, um, whose suffering gets to count in Germany? Which historical tragedies are seen as such and then honored in a just manner and the exhibition is no longer up but has the uh, German Technical Museum been able to have an active uh, conversation about the relationship as you described between the shipping industry and German colonialism and the different European powers that traded with West African to instill and enforce the transatlantic slave trade? I would say that just quickly that the museum still has the other side of this installation still up. So like the installation of the cargo box with the slaves, with the depictions of slaves in them is no, no longer existing. But they have another box on the other side of the space that shows the interior of a very nice cruise ship for the white patrons with pillows and portholes and nautical paintings that and so like you can imagine like this was kind of trying to paint this very like distinct picture of like who can be comfortable on a boat and who can't be who is suffering on a boat and who can't be in terms of the museum and how they're responding they are still trying to they're they're planning to have like a series of like panels and workshops to continue the work of decolonizing institutional spaces which is really great and they're working very intimately with decolonized berlin in that partnership uh, which i think is really good so like the the it doesn't just end with this performance um but i mean to answer your question about who gets to suffer or whose suffering is recognized or honored i mean maybe in the eyes of like boring white German people like not us but I'm I just don't agree and I don't I for me like what's most what the thing that I'm trying to hold on to the most is this idea that I can care and I can center my body bodies that look like mine other marginalized bodies that don't look like mine like that can still be even if like the mainstream or like white supremacist uh, mainstream is not recognizing that does not mean that it's true. And for me, like that is the most important thing. Like with this guy that was building this, this installation, like it wasn't real and it was not true, but because of all of this um, power and clout that he had, suddenly people believed it to be true. And the same could be said for how 
um, people are marginalized for their gender, for their sexuality, or for their skin color, for the for the lightness, for the darkness of their skin color. You know, like these are all things that we need to like unpack. And I think, in a, in some ways, we understand that these measures are arbitrary and constructed, but they still have very real world effects. And in my case, like not to say that racism does not affect me anymore, because of course it does. Like I have feelings. But I've stopped looking at it um, as a personal problem, and I and because I, I just like, like what do you what could you possibly know about me? Like you know nothing, and and I really believe that now, and like that space allows me to kind of do the work that some people may call difficult work, um, from a place of ease and of um, of focus. But I wouldn't be lying if I said that the performance wasn't exhausting. Like it was in some ways. Like it was tiring, like it, it was a, a big project. Um, I'm, I'm a human being. Um, but yeah, I think the museum is trying. I don't know like what they're doing exactly, but <laughs> they're trying to do something. One thing that I, I find fascinating about what you just mentioned is that it's not just a matter of what white people or racists or people who might have um, imperialist ideas what they think per se, but how you feel and potentially how the work that you produce connects to the communities that matter most to you. So the marginalized, the oppressed, um, queer folk, etc. And in some ways that speaks to when I think about, and this is unrelated, but I've, I've been watching a lot of like ballroom performances and things of that nature, but you know, shows like Pose where despite the homophobia and transphobia, that is directed towards you know working class black and Latinx people in the in New York City ballrooms were a way for people to build communities to speak to each other as opposed to always finding a kind of assimilation in a broader society that was so anti-black and homophobic so the the work of um, being anti-racist and and from within can also be the, a work of empowerment a work of uh, of assurance and just confidence. And it also just like makes me happy, you know, to feel that like, yeah, it makes me happy to see other people happy and like thriving. And if I can in my capacity, and I am like in a privileged position as an artist, you know, to be able to do this work, like whatever, like, but it really makes me like deeply like joyful to like be able to do this work and to, you know, also like, continue to discover my own identities and my own blind spots and like and I, and I think at the end of the day it's like you know we're all on this planet we're all vulnerable in some way or another and I'd rather just not make it any more any like harder for people than it needs to be like yeah I don't know I think it to me it's like not rocket science you know to treat people the way that you would want to be treated but yet here we are in 2020 still having to have these conversations it's actually embarrassing well speaking of 2020 um this has been a difficult year for so many people in light of the novel coronavirus COVID-19 and how it's impacted various communities uh, especially black and ethnic minorities in the global north and people in the global south and as you mentioned earlier the resurgence of the black lives matter movement and how we see put on display the violence, both state and otherwise, uh, towards people who look like us and who have our skin, not because there's something wrong with us, but because the hate that is on this other side of the trigger of a gun can um, 
can cost us our lives. And I just want to know how are you coping with in um, finding acts of joy during this moment? It's very difficult, you know, like I have a brother, I have a father, I have a little brother, I have cousins, you know, I have a body, I have family, I have friends who are all still in America fighting this virus and fighting the virus of white supremacy. Um, and it's in some ways, like when it was first, when things were first going down, I felt like I should be there. But my family was like, no, sit down, <laughs> like stay where you are. Um, I don't know, it's like, it's it's weird to say this, but in, it's not that I wasn't like aware of what had happened, like what was going down and had, and that I hadn't experienced like blatant racism all my life, because I have, but just to see like this, like global reaction, kind of for me, like cemented how little the world really cares about black people or how much they're like, how big of a thing it is that like, everyone knows that it's a problem or most people know that it's, a, that, that it's a problem and they also hold this problem maybe even i hold this problem in some ways you know it was just like very shocking and i felt like when i was dealing with people i was always kind of being seen through this lens of like the movement and like are you like my, my white friends like messaging me and all these things it was just very like overwhelming and like confusing in some ways but i did feel like a, a, a shift but the shift is not great enough and it's not big enough. I still think that we need to like continue. It needs to like go and go and go. Um, but yeah, I was just feeling very, I was unnerved a little bit. Of course, you're supposed to be happy in some ways that like people are finally like, oh, like racism is a thing. But I was just unnerved by like how much of a thing it was and how, like sometimes like the very opposite can happen where people like praise you so much that it also feels a bit uncomfortable or like ingenuine, you know, and or like fetish, fetishy or tokeny and all these things. But so I'm still kind of wading through it. But in terms of how I find joy, I mean, sometimes I don't find it and that's fine. Sometimes I go out and party with my friends until 10 o'clock in the morning. You know, sometimes I lay home, I read a book, I make a painting. Sometimes I watch Netflix, sometimes I pray, sometimes I meditate, sometimes I have sex. You know, like it's kind of the same things that you have to do to like get through life. But I have found joy and I have found happiness. And for me, like that is, I know that that joy and that happiness is mixed in with privileges and disprivileges. And, but it's still a joy that I'm able to access. And that to me reminds me that it's possible, you know, to experience these things in my body, in bodies that look like mine and that are breathing, you know, so. And how does your art help you to access some of these acts of joy? Oh my God, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know. It's like sometimes, to be honest, like in the past couple of months, I have like seen a career shift and I've been a bit burnt out and exhausted and we I think we talked about this after the critical culture panel a little bit but in the last couple of days I've just kind of like taken a step back and I was like Moni you worked really hard to like be where you're at and you love what you do and like let's just remember that like this is the bed that you've made that you pick the sheets the pillowcases like you really were a part of that process 
Um, and so the joy of making is something that is not always available, but I'm trying to make it more and more available. And in terms of the joy, again, it's just kind of like finding the space in my life that is mine, regardless of any lover or family or this or that. It's just a space that is mine where I don't always have to like, like justify things. I mean, now, like after thinking about and having this interview, I can talk about my work, but the, the work is like, so not just this, like, it's like a constellation of things, but just knowing that I can just like step into the space. And even if I don't always hit the target that I want, the fact that the space is there for me is just like, it, it's, it makes my life worth living. Like if I didn't have my practice, I don't know, I don't know what I would do, you know? And I think this idea that like, you don't, you can't really choose to be an artist is true. Like I would not wish that, like it's hard, it's confusing. Like I still don't know what I'm doing in a lot of ways, which is similar to life in general, but I'm, I'm just like so grateful. And I have this fear that one day this like candle will just extinguish in me or something. You know, like I'll, I'll have no more new ideas or no more new inspirations. And then every day I wake up and I'm like, oh, that's a thing. And that's a, oh, and this is the, it's like just like this never ending, like series of connections. And yeah, I don't know. I'm just really like grateful. But in some ways, um, what you're describing reminds me of one of the panelists at the Critical Cultures um, event that we were part of for Berlin Art Week. Uh, Gallery Koning mentioned how process is so important in this moment. Mushtari, hello. Yeah. <laughs> And so it's not um, uh, just a question about uh, the final product, but actually do like going through the motions and like you said, maybe slowing down at times and assessing what are your capacities and that it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign like you can't be inspired by the world because clearly there's so much to be inspired by, but that um, we can take a, a breath perhaps um, as we move through um, our, our different practices. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. And for me, like one breakthrough moment that I've had recently was I think that like as an artist, you feel like you have to synthesize like your emotions and like your political ideas into this like visual form sometimes and like just give it to people and they just learn. But then I was like, oh, wait, no, you can just kind of like be in the process of making and those thoughts and ideas and that energy can imbue the work. And it doesn't have to just always be so like clearly laid out, which to me is what enjoying the process is about. And even if a person looks at an artwork and doesn't know every detail of like where I was mentally or conceptually when I made that piece, it still is there. And I think that that's also how I feel about, I, in a weird way, like the worth of of black people and of other marginalized bodies and people. It's like. It's, it's there. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be white and blonde and straight and cis in order for it to like, to be there. But it is still scary when like the breath, your breath and your life can be taken away so qu quickly for things that you have no um, control over, but it's there. And yeah. So Thank you so much for being interviewed on the podcast and for your insight about your artistic practice, inspiration, and everything that you contribute and provide. And thank you for being you and for inviting me and for all the work that you're doing, because I know that it's not easy. And 
It's not. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> but you're doing it, and I'm really proud of you and excited to see all of the things that you continue to do and the pauses you continue to take when needed. Oh, thank you so much for that. <laughs> Positive words. My name is Edna Bonom, and you just listened to Season 3, Episode 10 of the Decolonization and Action Podcast, where I was in conversation with Moni Lola Olayemi Alupeju. This episode featured digitally based voices who live in Berlin, Germany. As always, there's a list of references and bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. Just want to remind everyone that the struggle for Black lives is still going on and that we are committed to anti-colonial work, organizing, and continuing to share these stories. Thank you so much for joining us 